Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa Nati janang apanyasapanya nati ajayato Yamhi janang chapanya cha sawe nibbana santi ke ti. This is the, the third talk of the, the Wasa, the Rains Retreat of 1999. Two weeks have gone past, and uh, having gone past, uh, hopefully that things are settling down for you as much as they can. Understanding the, the gradual process of the, the Eightfold Path, we understand that it takes time for the process to work. And <coughs> we can help that process by applying the different factors of the Eightfold Path. And as you know, the way which uh, I encourage people to practice here is to develop the silent uh, states of mind. And I emphasize those silent, peaceful, refined states of mind because they're a much better gauge of the progress on the path than any great ideas or insights which might come up in the mind. It's very easy to make insights the only trouble is that some of them are wrong, some of them are misplaced, and people even write books about misplaced insights. And the insights which come up are very often not a sure sign of the progress you're making on the path. What is a greater sign of progress is the, the calmness, the peace, the stillness of your mind. <coughs> and so I encourage people to take that as their standard, that is their guideposts to know just how they're developing in this practice which leads to the ultimate peace, that cessation called Parinibbana. But understanding that one can assess one's progress through the degree of peacefulness in the heart <coughs> uh, should not uh, lead to the misunderstanding that the peace occurs without any wisdom. It is the insight, it is the wisdom which creates that peace. It is the the wisdom, the insight, (coughs) which is a crucial factor in leading to the release of the mind. And that is why that I teach here again and again that there is no separation between the Samatha and Vipassana, between the calm and insight, that these two are linked together. And that was just repeating what I heard so many times from Ajahn Chah in Wat Bapong. The Vipassana Samatha go together as a pair. <coughs> and in fact, as I was mentioning just a moment ago, you can measure one's understanding of Dhamma by the degree, the degree to which you can let go of the world and gain peacefulness. 
if you truly have understanding wisdom, you will be able to let go. You will not be involved in the world. You will not carry the world around with you. You will be peaceful. You will be free. No one asks you to carry that world with you. <coughs> whatever is said, whatever you see, whatever you hear, whatever you taste, smell, touch, even you think, no one asks you to carry that with you. <coughs> You've got no responsibility or duty to carry the past impressions of the senses into the following moment. We do this out of stupidity, out of defilements, and it is that which stops us <coughs> stops us from freeing the mind, which stops us from enjoying the peace of that freedom, which stops us realizing the bliss of that peace, simply because we carry what is none of our business to carry. We haven't got the wisdom which creates that peacefulness. And that's why at the beginning of this talk I chanted the very uh, well chanted by me phrase from the Dhammapada, there is no wisdom without jhana, there is no jhana without wisdom. But in the one who's got wisdom and jhana, who's got panya and jhana, they're in the presence of Nibbāna. Sawe Nibbāna Santike. Very powerful gata from the Dhammapada. But in particular I wanted to stress in this talk this evening the value of wisdom as a means to calming the mind, as a means to developing the deep states of peacefulness which we call jhana. <coughs> Nati jhanang apanyasa. There is no jhana for one who doesn't have wisdom. Wisdom into what? One of the monks was telling me this, this evening, I saw a passage in the, the suttas, which says that a person who does not see the danger with samapanyaya, with, with proper wisdom, they don't see the danger in the five senses, then they will never be able to attain jhanas. And it's a powerful saying because it's pointing to one of the main blocks, the main obstacles to the attainment of these deep states of mind. <coughs> because we don't see the danger in this world of the five senses and their echoes in the mind. We have the, the world of the five senses is karma loka. We also have what the Buddha called karma vitaka, the thoughts of those five senses. The echoes in our mind of what was seen, heard, smell, taste or touch with the body earlier today yesterday, the day before. That karma we talk, which bounces around in the mind can occupy many hours of our time and block us from experiencing silence and freedom. <coughs> so often it is because we carry around that world because we don't see the danger in that world. And we delight in that world. So the Lord Buddha <coughs> pointed out and encouraged people to actually contemplate the danger in the realm of the five senses. To contemplate that danger. It's one of the contemplations in the uh, Girimananda Sutta, the Adinawa Sanya. And it's something which 
I encourage uh, every monk, nun, novice, anigarika, anigarika to develop during this range retreat. Notice the danger in seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. <coughs> How often is it, especially the danger through hearing, that we hear someone say something, we hear a discussion, we hear a point of view, and we don't like it. And that can just bounce around in our mind for days. It can create great anger, irritation, a feeling of being hard done by, a feeling of <coughs> uh, distress, disillusionment, despair, all because of words which were said into one's ear. Or someone can praise us and say, what a wonderful anagarika you are. You may even actually come and say to you by yourself, I might even come and say to you, you're the best Anagarika in the whole monastery. And you found out I said it to every other Anagarika as well. <laughs> and then you get disappointed. Is it the case that for praise and blame, for the words which we hear, which we like, which we find pleasing, because we do not see the danger in pleasing words, we hang on to them, we dwell upon them, and that stops us gaining peace from that world. Or because we don't see the danger in lingering on unpleasant words, on words which we don't agree with, on words which we find offensive, on words which we think are just plain wrong, that we linger on those things because we don't see the danger in that world of sound. <coughs> and so it's a very powerful way of using one's mindfulness to remember the danger of all that you hear through your ears and all that you think about in your mind based upon what you hear through those ears and be able to let it go, to drop it. Why? Because you see the danger in carrying it around. And the same with what you see through the eyes. <coughs> so often you can see these beautiful sights and that can attract you and you can think and and fantasize and dream about those things for a long, long time. You have to be careful about the danger of imagery and how it sticks into the mind. <coughs> and so I remember as a young monk, my first range retreat, or before my first range retreat, in Wat Chat when it was first built. Sorry, it was after the first range retreat. Because Ajahn Chah's preceptor, his Upajaya, died in the monastery at Bungwai. And there was his funeral ceremonies <coughs> one evening in the village monastery. And those funeral ceremonies for a senior and well-respected monk consisted of singing, dancing, boxing matches and dancing girls in the monastery. There was actually <coughs> a stage there with a band. This was in 1975 or 6 or something. <coughs> there was a hick band playing and pretty girls dressed up and all the old villagers, 50, 60, 65 years of age, were paying one baht to go and have a dance with these young floozies. This was how they celebrated a funeral in Thailand in those days. But because it was Ajahn Chah's preceptor and because he told us, we went and did the chanting 
<coughs> before the cremation. And we stayed a bit longer as Ajahn Chah was talking to some of the disciples. And after the funeral had been completed, and they started up the festivities for the villagers. It was late, and by the time we started walking, I remember going past those dancing girls and just looking up for a moment to see sort of someone who'd been, or a number of girls who were dressed to kill. <coughs> and just that night, just having sensual dreams, even though I turned my eyes down after maybe one second or two seconds, just a glance was enough to stay in my mind for a long time. And it just taught me just the danger of the senses, just how one glance, let alone more than, long, more than one glance, can disturb the mind <coughs> and can stop the mind gaining peace and quiet for a long time. When you understand the danger of the five senses, the practice of sense restraint becomes so obvious and so clear and so meaningful. Only when it becomes obvious and meaningful can the practice become possible. When you see the purpose behind it, can you actually practice it with diligence. That's why that without the wisdom, the understanding of why we live in a monastery practicing sense restraint, why we don't listen to music, watch movies, see exciting things, <coughs> why we don't get into stimulation of the senses but restraint of the senses. Once you understand why we renounce that world because of the danger in it, then it becomes possible, it becomes natural that sense restraint will happen. So if you have, are finding it difficult with sense restraint, then try focusing on the contemplation of the danger of the five senses. Look at any pain and trouble, disappointment, dissatisfaction which you're experiencing in your mind and ask where did it have its cause? Is it not from this world of the five senses or is echo in the realm of the mind? the thoughts about that world, the fantasies about that world, the memories about that world, the hopes for that world. Isn't that what occupies so much of the mind? <laughs> and isn't that just, as it was saying in the sutta we chanted earlier in the, the fire sermon, isn't that just setting these senses on fire? Doesn't that actually burn you? When do you experience happiness and contentment? Isn't it the case when those five sense worlds are settled down, are calmed, are dealt with when their business is over so that they disappear and you can put your attention somewhere else where you're not bothered and concerned with that world of the five senses. Isn't it true what the Buddha said that these world of the five senses is on fire, is blazing, is blazing with illusion, with moha, is blazing with raga, with craving, it's blazing with dosa, blazing with anger. So much of these defilements originate from that world of the five senses. When you get angry and upset, why? Isn't it because of something you heard, or something somebody said, or something you've seen? It might be even something you tasted. Someone didn't cook the food right today. 
It could have been a smell. Someone passed wind right in front of you as you're sitting here this evening. It could have been something you felt in the body. How much of anger and ill will (coughs) arises from those five senses? How much desire and greed arises from those five senses? And what is that anger and ill will, that desire, that greed, that lust, what's it like? Isn't it a burning of the mind? Is it not just an imprisonment of the mind? where you're not free to attend to other things, where the object of your anger or the object of your desire just consumes every moment, every minute of your time, where you cannot free the mind from those tra- that train of thought, even though it's torturing you, it's hurting you, it's depriving you of happiness and peace, you just cannot liberate your mind from it once it takes hold. It's like the bushfire in the mind. So know the danger. In the same way that we know the danger of fire in this monastery during the hot weather, during the summertime, during the dry months of January and February and December, we take extra care that not even a match is lit outside. Because one match, one spark can set the whole forest on fire during the summertime in Australia. And that fire can not only wipe out all the buildings in this monastery, it can kill people and it can wipe out the kangaroos, the parrots, the kookaburras, the cats. Wipe out all the beings who depend upon this monastery. We had a fire here eight years ago and it was devastated the monastery. For one, for about six or eight months, the monastery was grey, black, After the fire there was not a leaf left on a tree, unburnt. From here you could see to the A-frames because there was no bushes, no foliage. The forest was like a graveyard, like a battlefield. It was not pleasant to see. Just one spark, one small flame had almost destroyed a whole monastery. This is what happens with one flame. One small little piece of anger can so easily take hold in the mind. A small irritation can consume many hours, many days of your time. Or a small little piece of lust can just obsess the mind to the point you cannot stay here. You have to leave. (coughs) That is how dangerous these things are. Once you know the danger, you appreciate the danger, that wisdom informs you that there's danger, then you'll avoid even the smallest spark. You'll avoid the smallest spark of ill will. And isn't it strange that when we live in a monastery, the ill will doesn't go to people outside the monastery, it goes to your fellow monks, your fellow Anagarikas, I can't say fellow nuns here, but your fellow summoners. I've often seen that the ill will in monks goes to the people sitting next to you, either up one or down one, just because of the association we have, the closeness we have. As Ajahn Yana was saying to some Thai people uh, yesterday or the day before, two people, because they live close together, they rub up against each other. 
and that friction causes the heat of ill will and anger. If you live far apart, if you're down one end of the line and the other person's on the other end of the line, you don't get so much friction, except if it's the, the abbot, the senior monk, because I always have to tell you what to do, I'll tell you what not to do. So there'll always be that friction there. But make sure that friction never is allowed to make a spark. Because that spark can take hold of your mind and create so much suffering and pain. But worse than just the sheer suffering and pain of ill will, of anger, of, <coughs> of hatred even, is the, the fact you're denying yourself the opportunity to gain the peaceful states of mind to gain the blisses of jhana and the powerful insights which will release you from samsara based on those. It's not just the fact that you're torturing yourself with ill will, anger, with lust, with greed. It's just what you're denying yourself is the biggest tragedy of those who allow the defilements to take hold in the mind. Because if you can just let go of the world of the five senses. At least let go of the world of the five senses of the past. Forget it, forgive it, abandon it, renounce it, as if you have no history, as if yesterday and last week and last year did not exist, as if even this morning did not exist, as if all the only thing you have is this moment. At least let go of that amount of five sense world. Surely it makes sense. And it's easy to do in the moment, but how often is it we take back to our huts the events of the morning? What was said during the meal, what was said during the discussions, <coughs> what someone said in passing to you as you washed your bowl. You put in your yarn and you carry back to your hut and you mix it in with your tea and you drink it and it becomes part of you all afternoon. What a shame, what a waste of an opportunity, of a chance to develop stillness. You've only got three months, Rain's Retreat. Two weeks have already gone past. Please don't waste the rest of this retreat. It's valuable, it's priceless. You haven't got time to waste. So develop that perception of danger. <coughs> that perception of danger is the reason why, as a monk, when I was in Thailand, in the forest of Thailand, why I never got bitten by things like snakes. I can't say I never got bitten by scorpions or centipedes, because sometimes even the best of precautions, they would crawl into your hut, they'd even crawl under your blankets. I remember getting bitten by a centipede once, who crawled under my blanket on the floor, while I was asleep and bit me on the toe. Fortunately, I flicked it off before I could, almost <laughs> automatically, before I could inject any poison, even though the two puncture marks were still on my toe. But with the snakes, you could avoid, avoid them. And for those who have been in Thailand, you know there were snakes all over the place, big ones, small ones, all dangerous. And because some, sometimes you didn't have, in the early days of Wat Bapong, when I was there, I remember just I had a flashlight and the batteries were dull 
you could hardly see even like a foot in front of you. So I went up to Ajahn Chah and asked him for some flashlight batteries because he was a storeman, he was the one who had all these things. He said, sorry, we haven't got any. <coughs> there wasn't any flashlight batteries. They had to feel your way you know, back to your huts. It's alright it was a clear night and you could see by the stars, but sometimes the clouds were were above and it was difficult to find your way. <coughs> and sometimes you knew there were snakes around. It wasn't the snakes, it was the biting ants, the motlin. It was difficult. But because you knew these things were around, you took extra care. Because you knew they were dangerous, mindfulness was set up to avoid the dangers. And it's the job of mindfulness and wisdom to know the dangers and to avoid them. Once you know the dangers and you really appreciate just how painful they can be, how terrible they can be, then it gets easy to avoid these things. You're on the lookout for the snakes. You're on the lookout for the lines of black ants. And so you avoided them. If we could only be on the lookout, be mindful of, be careful of, the defilements which come up into our mind, like I was aware of the snakes, then they would not bite you. They would not, like the python, circle their coils around you and choke off a whole afternoon because of some lustful fantasy or because of some anger or ill will you have towards another member of the community. <coughs> they say when a snake bites, it burns, some type of snake. That burning, you can see, is just the ill will and anger. This is what happens, or the fire of lust. So when you see the danger of these defilements, you contemplate the danger, you've been bitten enough times already, be careful of these things. When you know the danger, sense restraint becomes possible. Mindfulness is set up to avoid those sense objects, those ways of seeing, those ways of thinking about the sense world, which will overwhelm the mind, which will cause fever, which will cause irritation, which will cause burning, which will cause pain and suffering. You've been there, you've done that so many times. Shouldn't you know the danger by now? <coughs> Remind yourself of the danger. And having reminded yourself of the danger, mindfulness will come to your rescue. It's like you see the snake in the path ahead of you in time to make a detour. The problem with most people is that the mind is completely somewhere else and they're walking down the path with their head in the clouds and they step right on the snake and it's got you before you know it. So often we're walking through this monastery and someone says something and straight away we get angry, we get ill will, we get upset. The snake's got you before you've realized it. <laughs> you weren't mindful, you weren't wary. 
you hadn't contemplated the dangers enough. <coughs> and so these bad states of mind have overwhelmed you. Once a bad state of mind is overwhelmed you, it's very difficult to abandon, to overcome, to get rid of. Basically, it's too late. You weren't careful enough. Sense restraint had not been practiced. And you have to suffer the consequences of going back to your hut with a painful mind, with a heavy head, which cannot stop thinking. You cannot sleep, you cannot rest, you cannot enjoy meditation. This is what happens when it's ill will or lust or bad states of mind. <coughs> so be wary, be careful of these things. Just know just how many times you've got bitten and avoid those snakes of ill will, of lust. Look out for them. Especially if it's one you've been caught with again and again and again and again. The one way of reminding yourself is use the power of aditana, the power of resolution. If you know that there is something which constantly upsets you, or some person or some situation or something, in your heart, by yourself, make a resolution. I've been bitten by this snake so many times. The snake of ill will because this one person keeps on saying this. Or the snake of lust, of desire, of greed, <coughs> of jealousy. Whatever your snake is, there's hundreds of varieties of snake and they're all deadly. When there is one which you notice, which is keep spiting you again and again, you are its favourite target. Be especially aware of that and use the power of resolution in your own heart when you're feeling calm. Make a resolution if you have a Buddha statue before the Buddha statue. That is the most dangerous thing I have to deal with this week. I'll be wary of this. I'll look upon this as a snake out to catch me lurking in the shadows of the dining room, the hall, wherever you <coughs> you go in this monastery, lurking there ready to pounce whenever there's a slight lack of attention. And if you make that resolution that you will make this part of your practice to be aware of this danger, you realize it's a danger, you'll find that you are programming your mind, conditioning your mind, to be able to see that danger before it can strike you. If it's lust, just as lust is about to strike, you notice it coming. You take evasive action. You cast your eyes down. You look for a super. You remember the words of the Buddha about the dangers of lust. Like the person carrying a flaming torch in the wind. It is wind blows a fire back in front of you. Whatever simile you remember, you, it comes to your mind as an aid because you've warned yourself, you've seen the danger, the program starts to kick in and you don't get caught. Of his ill will is your problem. That word gets said and straight away the irritation starts to arise 
But because you've made a resolution that this is your snake, this is the danger, you've been bitten so many times, you know the danger, as soon as ill will starts to arise, mindfulness kicks in, says no. I'm not going to follow that train of thought. I'm going to stop it straight away. I know where this is going to lead. It's going to lead to my pain, to my distress, all afternoon. I don't, <coughs> I don't care why that monk, why that Anagarika said that. If, if he said something mean and nasty, that's his karma, it's not mine. He will have to pay for that. I'm not going to join in the transaction. You let it go straight away because you've practiced the establishment of mindfulness through the power of resolution, having realized these things are dangerous. And you can carry forward that simile of the snake into your even practice of meditation when you're on your chair or your cushion rather or on your walking path. If it's sloth and torpor, if it's <coughs> um, desire, if it's restlessness or doubt, whatever is your favorite hindrance, call it a snake. Before you even start walking or sitting, say so this is the one I've got to be aware of. This is the danger. This is the one which has stopped me so many times getting into deep meditation. This is my hindrance. And if you see the danger in those hindrances, if you observe them as a danger, and you psych yourself up to be wary of them, then you'll find that when that hindrance first raises its head in your meditation practice, when it pops, the snake pops its head from the side of the path, you see it straight away. Here's sloth and torpor coming. You notice it before it's got a chance to bite you and catch you. Here's that sexual fantasy coming. No. Here's ill will coming up again. No. You catch it at the beginning. When you catch these defilements at the beginning, they're very easy to say no to. When the snake's got you, it's too late. And this comes especially to the restlessness of mind which is called thinking. Perhaps one of the, the worst of the defilements <coughs> which stop people enjoying the peaceful meditations. If that is your snake, just notice how once the first thought comes into the mind, that it makes two, three, four, it makes whole minutes, hours of thinking. It's got you. If you can see that first thought come up in the mind and say no, then you'll find it's very easy to stop. It's because you've caught it before it's got a chance to establish itself. Just like the train leaving the station. If it's only started to leave the station and the driver puts the brakes on, it comes to a stop almost immediately. Once that train is going along the track, 60, 80, 90, 100, 150 kilometers an hour, it's just so hard to stop. Even if <coughs> the driver sees 
an obstacle on the tracks from a half a kilometre away still cannot stop in time it's going too fast see if you can stop the train of thought when it's first leaving the station of the mind <coughs> while there's still time to stop it end it then and the mindfulness can be set up that way because you realise the danger most people are obsessed by thinking in the world because they have no conception of the danger of thought they still understand that thought will get you somewhere that thought will get you wise that when you've got enough nice thoughts you can write a book or give a talk about all your wonderful thoughts and get people coming up to you and saying what a wonderful thinker you are in Buddhism we say you're stupid now the greatest of thinkers are stupid it's not through thinking that you find out the truth it's through silence that you see the nature of the mind for that deepest silence where the mind isn't moving a millimetre in jhanas not through thinking but through the ending of thinking of conceptualising, of proliferation And to be able to do this, we have to notice the danger of thinking. We have to notice the danger of doing, controlling. And I point this out so many times because in the deeper meditation, this becomes the snake which keeps on biting you and stops you attaining the deepest of the jhanas, or the deeper meditations called the jhanas. There's something which comes in when everything is going well, and you mess it all up again and again and again getting peaceful and limiter might even come up and then you do something and it disappears again that doer that doer, that doing that making, that building, that constructing, that controlling that managing that influencing that doer how much suffering has it caused you already in your life? With all that doing, where have you got? How much has it truly achieved? Isn't it sort of just been a complete waste of time? 20 years, 30 years, 40 years? What have you done in your life? Which has been really useful. Which has been really useful. One of the best things which I've done in my life is letting go. The non-doing has been the most valuable, meaningful experiences of my life as a monk <coughs> okay I've built monasteries given talks and set up sanghas or whatever ordained monks that's nowhere near as useful and inspiring from where I'm sitting as the times when I've done absolutely nothing and I mean absolutely those have been the most meaningful times so it gives me a lot of <coughs> disgust with the doer it gives them a sense of seeing the danger in the doer. It gives me a sense of wanting to let the doer go. And I only have to take on this doer when it's absolutely necessary to perform my duties in the monastery. So, <coughs> when you see the disgust of the doer, when you see the danger in all of that doing, 
without controlling. Because what's a doer anyway? It's only just coming from dunha, from craving. Coming from a sense of self, of controlling, of owning, trying to get one's own way. When you see the danger in that doer, you can completely let it go. Only when you see the danger in it can this happen. People who want to do things in the world, who want to achieve things in the world, want to make things in the world so that people can say, what a great doer you are. You've done so much in this world. You're a marvellous person. You've got so many achievements under your belt. (coughs) Isn't that what sort of a lot of people seek in this world? And everyone else goes around like stupid people saying just how wonderful each other are. You've done so much. Oh, so have you done so much also. Look what you've done. It's created a family, more dukkha. Built a house, more dukkha. Done this, done that, more dukkha. All the people do is dukkha. That's the only thing which people manufacture in this world. It's dukkha, suffering. And so that by non-doing, by the ending of that doer, we can actually experience something else. <coughs> but only by seeing the danger in these things. That's why by doing the Adina Sanya, the perception of the, the danger in all of these things, can the wisdom arise to create the mindfulness to stop these things. If you don't know that snakes hurt when they bite, if you don't know those nice little black ants can sting you like crazy then you go around playing with those things and you'll hurt and you'll get pain and you'll suffer and you'll have no peace and you'll have no happiness because you played with something which is dangerous (coughs) so please practice the perception of danger in the world of the five senses on lust, on ill will on the thinking mind and on the doer. And whatever else you can find which creates problems and difficulties in your mind. Practice the perception of danger on these things again and again and again <coughs> until the mind becomes conditioned to be scared of these things to the point that you're wary and that mindfulness stops you ever getting bitten by these things. And then you can be free from the fires, the fires which burn. And you have the space, the opportunity to develop the blissful meditations, the freedoms of the mind and the freedoms of insight. That's why the Buddha said there is no jhanas without wisdom, without seeing those dangers. (coughs) But by seeing those dangers, you can let go of them and all these beautiful things will come by themselves. So that's a little talk this evening on Adina Wasanya, on the perception of danger. Are there any questions about anything I've said this evening? Have you got a question? Sorry? What is the doer? This is the... Uh, activity of the mind. It's uh, conditioned, it comes from something other than you 
However, the doer is very often taken to be uh, yourself, Pablo, the, the person, the self, the soul. That which does is very often taken to be the self. <coughs> you can see, especially in deep meditation, that that doing is an obstacle to deeper experience of freedom and bliss. Then understanding that, you can see the doer as a danger. You can let it go and then the doors to jhana are open to you. Without seeing that as a danger, you'll never be able to enter into a jhana. If you still take the doer to be yourself, and that illusion establishes itself so firmly in the mind that you are unwilling to let go of the doer. There is no, no chance of, of the jhanas happening. You can get close, but not all the way in. There is an entrance fee for the jhanas. Some of you have to give up as you go inside. The doer is part of the entrance fee. You get it back when you come out afterwards. <coughs> Any other questions? Okay. Hand on here.